Welcome to The Vine, a plant media project podcast with your hosts, Elizabeth Sheldon and Gina Vensel. And today we have Christopher Takimato Gentile from the International Cannabis Bar Association. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Hi, Gina. Thanks for having me. Yes. Yeah. So glad to have you today. Thank you so much. So let's just dive right in. You know, each episode, we like to start by asking you to share your story. So how did you become a part of the cannabis industry? Uh, Well, uh, I became a part of the cannabis industry back in 2007 when uh, right after, well, I wasn't graduated from college, but my my close high school friends had just graduated from college. um, And I traveled to LA during my summer of my junior year. And I was an intern at their newly opened dispensary. Uh, And this is kind of cutting edge. You know, this is like uh, 2007, 2006 is when California had just passed uh, their um, legalization for medical marijuana law. And um, my friends that were going to school there just kind of jumped headfirst into the industry without uh, any fear. Um, And I think we were all, you know, early 20s. Uh, definitely still learning about life and responsibility. And it was an amazing experience. And I was actually really surprised at how uh, accomplished we were at the time with uh, kind of our business network. And, you know, we were making money. The 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 name of the collective was Karma Collective. Uh, and, great you know, everything seemed to be going great. And then uh, that summer I was there, I ha- was I also had a theater uh, internship that I was going to. So I go to my theater internship in the morning and then I take a bus to the dispensary and go hang out for the rest of the day. Um, so basically I would do the theater stuff and, um, do the canvas stuff as well. And unfortunately one day while I was at the the theater, I got a call and they said that, you know, the police had just come, um, responding to a burglary. And I'm like, okay, that doesn't sound too bad. You know, did, what, what did they take? And then they're like, there was no burglary. And I'm like, what do you mean there's no burglary? Why were the police there? And they're like, well, they said they had gotten a call that there was a burglary at the dispensary. And then they showed up. And then uh, because they uh, had the smell of cannabis, used that as a pre-context to then uh, go into the dispensary and raid them. Um, So, you know, these group of officers basically broke in, took a lot of cash and cannabis um, and and the medicated ice cream, which was like 50 pounds of medicated ice cream. (laughs) and, Which uh, had to be eaten right away, right, Chris? Because, I mean, it's going to melt otherwise, so someone enjoyed it. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I think they counted, like, each pound of ice cream as a pound of marijuana, too. Oh, uh, my goodness. Yeah, like, the cocaine in the in the pool scenario is, like, is, if there's a little bit of cocaine in the pool, is the whole pool dirty now? <laughs> uh, wow. So, so wow. that happened, and we went to court. Uh, we had a pro bono lawyer. I think we paid him in, in, in like, a couple of ounces of cannabis. It was kind of funny. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they did the whole thing. And at the end the judge said, you know, this is legal in the state and gave us a paper to get all of our evidence back, the money and the cannabis. Uh, so we went to the evidence locker and when, when we showed up there with the paper, uh, they had informed us that the evidence was turned into the DEA. So we had no recourse to get any of that back. Uh, it did end up crashing the business. Um, And, you know, those cops and whatever happened to anything that was turned in or, you know, whatever they took from the dispensary between transporting it from the dispensary to the locker room, like it's a black box. No one knows to this day. But at the same time, the business is now completely without all of this product. And now is anyone in trouble? I mean, what happens with all of this? What happened at the time? 
Uh, well, yeah, they they did charge one of the owners. Uh, she was supposed to pay like fifty thousand dollars, which she never ended up having to pay. Uh, you know, it, it it really wasn't that bad, other than the fact that it crashed the business. Um, you know, the it it really was too much of a financial hit for us to kind of keep going. Right. And so, you know, what it turned into a was what was was a really fun summer. It turned into closing the business summer. And, you know, uh, it was like kind of contrast because after that happened, like everything started falling apart. The relationships in the business were really strained and stressed. And, you know, like I said, we're all young, early 20s. And I just don't think we had the mental capacity and wherewithal to, to handle the situation at the time. Um, but on the other side, it gave us an experience into the industry at a very early stage. And everybody who worked at that dispensary, you know, has been or still is working in the cannabis industry. That's nice to hear. Right, because they didn't give up. That's really good. But at that time, did you have any connection to being involved with with law or being an attorney? Or you know, how did that all come about with how you got involved with the with Yeah, the no, not at all. I was I was living in, you know, hippie Narnia at that point. <laughs> uh, and it was great. And I loved it. And I think, I think I, I wouldn't trade anything for that. And uh, I think it was as I got older, I realized that I wanted to upgrade my status uh, from a cannabis user to somebody with a little more weight to their opinion. You know, there's a lot of, I hang out with a lot of stoners with opinions and I wanted to kind of elevate um, my experience and my opinions with cannabis to a, a, the next level. And I realized that with everything that was going on, the different businesses that my friends were working in, the different ideas, whether it was growing or, uh, you know, my friends, a COO or whatever it was, I realized going into law would get me the job I wanted in the industry. And that was kind of it. It's like, I wanted to have my dream job. Not that it was being a lawyer was my dream job, but I wanted to be able to choose whatever job I wanted in the cannabis industry and be either overqualified or qualified uh, to take that position. So, I mean, it really was um, me realizing that I wanted to upgrade my status. And it was like my, I turned 30 and I was like, oh, it's time to go back to school. Like it was my, it was my 30 year old gift to myself of, you know, new, new, new number and the first number and a new kind of career, a new path to career. I, I just want to say that I'm so impressed by that. Um, my husband's a lawyer and he grew up uh, basically with nothing. And he said, I want to become a lawyer so that I can make some money. And he, it's changed um, into a wonderful career for him. But I love hearing from people who make a plan. I don't know that I ever had a plan in life. So I really, really respect that. And uh, next, we just want to ask you if you can tell us a little bit more about International Cannabis Bar Association and, and what it does. Right. I guess that kind of segues into, you know, what was <laughs> my dream, uh, <laughs> which I didn't know, to be honest. I think I went to law school thinking like very open minded of, oh, I want to go into litigation. And with my background in theater, I was like, OK, well, I'd be perfect for litigation. Put me <laughs> on the floor. Yeah. Like, give me the spotlight. Let's do this. Uh, but I kind of got feedback that that wasn't the right path when I did not make the mock trial team. 
Um, I was pretty frustrated at the time. And especially my one L year, I was, I was definitely a try hard. Like I, I don't think I've ever tried so hard academically than my one L year. Um, which, you know, it was a great experience. I was never like the super studier. And for the first time in my life, I find myself, you know, studying at school till seven, eight o'clock and getting home at nine, going to sleep, getting up at, you know, six and eight, six a.m. going back to school. So, I mean, it was a great uh, uh, test of, of my abilities. And I think slowly but surely, I realized that a lot of the normal paths into law, um, you know, whether it was talking to my peers or talking to other attorneys, I realized I wasn't going to work a lot in cannabis. I realized that it was going to be a firm. They were going to give me work that was going to make them money. It probably wasn't going to be to do with anything I wanted to deal with. Um, and, you know, that was a compromise I wasn't willing to make. So, you know, like any true 2L going into 3L, uh, <laughs> I did not have an internship that summer. I hadn't found any cannabis paid positions. Uh, my money when else summer, I worked for actually... Uh, the same friend that got arrested back when 2007, uh, their their company, she was working for Hawaiian Ethos on the big island of Hawaii. And I, I was their intern for the summer for free, basically. Well, they gave me free housing and like $500. But I basically worked for free. <laughs> but right. it was in Hawaii and it was great. I had a ton of fun. And, and the big island is a beautiful island, lots to do. I highly suggest, you know, anybody listening to this to go to the big island of Hawaii um, after Corona. And uh, so my 2L summer was really, I, you know, using those credentials, I was looking for something paid and something in the cannabis industry. And I ended up not finding anything. So I went to LA, uh, lived with my 86 year old roommate uncle and, uh, and, and started going to different conferences. And I, I ended up going to the NCIA conference uh, up in San Jose. I met an attorney named Christopher who, uh, who did evergreen law. And I ended up working for that firm for a little bit. Um, while I was in school and I got to go to more events and um, not only did I get to kind of get that job but I also linked up with the INCBA as a volunteer um, and I just started volunteering you know I just started giving my time or you know whatever my boss would ask of me uh, I just started getting involved and through my kind of um, rigor as a volunteer and good work ethic and and getting along with everybody uh, the INCBA kind of we created a relationship and that relationship uh, I, that 2L summer was excellent. I was the only volunteer at their event. And so I got some real great time with the owners and um, some of the bar member, uh, the board members. Um, and then they had another event in Washington, D.C. once school started again. So I was fortunate to go link up with them again in Washington, D.C. Um, and I think just through that consistency, and this is what I tell anybody who, you know, is looking to get into any industry is just like, just by showing up, you know, showing people that you're ready to go, that you're you're passionate about being there. Um, really went a long way. And, um, you know, when I was assessing what to do after school near graduation, it was like, okay, do I want to keep working for a firm? Do I want to keep going to all these conferences and networking? And, you know, it, my, my boss actually asked me, he's like, do you want to do actual work? Or do you want to keep going to these events? <laughs> and I was like, I want to go to these events. And I think that was the moment I realized I was like, okay, I don't think I want a traditional law career. I don't think I just want to work for a firm. I'm not against it. I'm, I definitely am open to doing it further down the road, but I want to be smack dab in the middle of it. I want to be in the room with the attorneys who've been doing this longer than me, because most of the time I meet people, they haven't been doing this longer than me. They haven't been around this in it since 2007. And to be perfectly honest, like I know more than they do. 
And so it's like, I want to be around people who inspire me, who know more about, about the industry, who have done things that I had an experience and that I, I wanted to be in that room with those kind of leaders. And, you know, just today I was on a call with our executive meeting and, you know, you see all those magazines of like top 200 lawyers and da, 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 da in the cannabis industry. And I go through those lists and I just feel so fortunate because so many people on those lists are either on our board, uh, they're members I've met or they're speakers that have come to speak at our events. And it's like exactly what I want to be like in it. Um, and I'm willing to take a pay cut for it. I mean, I make I make a nonprofit salary. I'm a, a lot of my peers are making double or triple um, what I make, but I love my job. So you couldn't, I wouldn't trade it. I love that. And I got to meet you through events and what's so awesome, uh, you know, being an events professional and then trying to make my way into the cannabis industry. I was lucky enough to meet you when you were organizing the Cannabis Law Symposium at my alma mater, the oh. University of Pittsburgh, which was so fantastic. And when I got to meet you, Chris, it was like, you know, you, you had this vision, you were working with the students there. I believe you were actually just finishing school at that time, maybe even too. Um, and that was such an incredible event. I mean, to be able to be at my alma mater and, and just hear from attorneys all of the different changes in law that are happening, not only in our state of Pennsylvania, but nationwide. And so I'm curious about, you know, if you have any other symposiums planned or what else you might be doing to support other law students now that you've moved on and, you know, what your organization may be doing now to still support students. Yeah, that was uh Thank you, Gina, for helping with that event. That was of course, yeah, that was great. Um, with with my realizing, you know, I think, like I said, two all summer, I realized like I kind of want to do a different um, change, and that's what inspired doing that event. And you know, it really was just me kind of against the world, and um, meeting people like Gina just was huge. They had uh, all the support, and you know, I was willing to do the work. And um, as a result of that, Pitt Law did start a uh, INCBA student chapter. Um, so, you know, that was, that did come into reality and, you know, COVID kind of changed how we work with students. Um, so since COVID, we've kind of put together a student mastermind group. Uh, we have about, uh, 10 different chapters across the America. Uh, and you know, all these students kind of were reaching out to me and I was like, all right, let's get together. You know, let me, let me get you guys all on a phone call and ask how we, the INCBA, uh, International Cannabis Bar Association can be of service to them. You know, what do they need from us going into their 2L, 3L, beyond their career, whatever? Um, do they, what resources? You know, for example, they are, they, one of the things is like we have our social media. You know, is there, do you guys want us to, you want to take over our social media for a day? So, you know, they got together and came up with uh, some little survey for them to fill out and do like student of the week highlights. You know, so, cool. so they can start creating content and posting, you know, students on our our uh, social media so they can kind of get pushed out. And, um, you know, their other attorneys can see that there are students that are interested, you know, specifically in cannabis, um, you know, and we'd help them with marketing for their events. Uh, typically, we our big CLI event, which is coming up in October, typically we have student volunteers there. So. Instead of having the student mastermind, we you know give them free admission to our, our events. We get to hang out with them, see them in person. I I love my students. Um, I feel uh, very akin to them, being a, a recent graduate, and I, I just I, they give me so much joy to be working with uh, 
you know, before success, when they're still, before they've done all the big things, when they're still like looking for their, their next step. And I, I just love being a part of that process. And, um, you know, whether it's students or like social equity projects, I just kind of always rooting for the underdogs. I always want to work with the people who maybe don't have all the resources. And, you know, I, I would say that that's not a ton, but I, you know, I make sure that we have a great social equity in our, in our offerings. I always, you know, in my personal who I want to work with in my different projects, I'm always looking for, you know, kind of up and comers, not somebody so much who's been established. Um, people are hungry to to kind of make something uh, of themselves that haven't done anything before. So I, I maybe that's just like a personal thing, but I, you know, I definitely bring that ideology to, to the IHCBA and I'm kind of a lot of the times the only minority on the, <laughs> the calls, but there typically is majority women on those calls too. So that's another thing that I, I do really um, think is female leadership is um, greatly needed right now. And the compassion that comes with the, those types of leaders. And, you know, I, I went to that testament. I think we just elected seven new female board members in our, in our last round. So wow. um, I'm very proud of that little statistic. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you think there'll be some other symposiums planned, you know, because I'd, I'd love to participate here and at the University of Pittsburgh, I mean, obviously with, you know, COVID, you know, so many of these events, you know, I believe that we were trying to plan this for the fall. I mean, you and I talked months and months and months ago and, you know, everything has just been kind of at a halt. Um, are there plans to hopefully do more events like this once we get past this pandemic? You know, we well, the INCBA is always putting on events. You know, we always have continuing uh, lawyer education. You know, most attorneys need to keep their credits, so many credits depending on the state they're in. And so we'll, we'll offer those credits with cannabis education. So, I mean, we'll always have education, but specifically for students, um, yes. I think this is the one thing that's come out of the student mastermind is the ability to kind of collaborate on different projects and get uh, different professors or people in the cannabis uh, network or industry um, to get one-on-one uh, -on -one time with students. And so that is on the agenda for our next student meeting in, uh, I don't know, a week from tomorrow. Um, and to, to start talking about, you know, what kind of content would the students like to come up with? How would they like to do that? What, what do they need from me? You know, whether it's a platform or I don't know, whatever it is. Um, and really, I, I let them kind of control their fate. And I, I don't tell them what to do. I just ask them, what do you need me to do? <laughs> I love you, that. I'm, and what do I you need me to do? Now. I'll help too, Chris. You let <laughs> me know. <laughs> I'm better volunteering for you. So, so, Chris, I saw on your website that you have a big virtual event coming up. Uh, can you tell us more about that? The 2020 Cannabis Law Institute, is that the correct name of the event? What's it all about? That is the correct name. Um, it's kind of our flagship. So every year, you know, we put this on, for, I'd say for the last four years. The first one was in Denver. Uh, the second one was the first one I went to, which was in D.C., uh, last year we had it at New York, uh, New York at New York Law School, and oh yeah, every time we do it at a, at a law school. So the, the first one is at Denver University. Uh, other one is at uh, Georgetown in DC, and then uh, New York Law School. And this year we we're going to have it in Chicago, and then we didn't. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, we were going to have so it. Many. Yeah, and we were really looking forward to that. Uh, you know, there's a lot of synergy in Chicago and, and a lot of great law schools. But um, 
unfortunately we had to pivot um so we we did successfully pivot to a virtual event uh we're still kind of figuring that out we're figuring out how our membership reacts to it and everything but you know we're we're doing everything we can our lineup is amazing and you know at the end of the day all of this is going to be recorded and you know this is going to be available to our membership moving forward and and really we're we're working on putting together the most comprehensive you know cannabis law library um available when it comes to education information so um we would love anybody to to join us at the cannabis the 2020 cannabis law institute um my day which i'll talk about and give a little highlight that i'm, I'm most excited for is our uh, first day um our first day includes our uh it's completely filled with social equity and i say first day and i feel like i'm talking about this like everybody knows um, because it's an entire month long. So it's all of October. Most most events you go to like three days and it's over. But this, um, we're doing an entire month. So you kind of have an entire month to meet people, network, um, go to what you're interested in. Maybe you have to work one day, maybe you don't. But, you know, all this will be available for the entire month. And um, like I said, on that October 1st, which is a Thursday, uh, we have some of the kind of most impactful people in the cannabis space working on equity. Um, you know, this concludes, uh, directors from the last prisoner project, uh, people working in the industry, former prosecutors, um, authors, and, and I, I guess I could start saying their names, you know, like Steve Angelo, Steve D'Angelo is coming to speak uh, for the last prisoner project. Great. Um, we have a vet McDowell, who was the former prosecutor in Los Angeles, um, uh, Michalina, who's the, uh, director of the last prisoner project and criminal justice law. Um, we also have a lot of regulators from the different states. So, you know, uh, Toy Hutchinson from Illinois, uh, Marissa Rodriguez from San Francisco. We have Kat Packer from Los Angeles, um, Shalene Title uh, from Massachusetts. Um, and then we also have uh, attorneys from the Minority Cannabis uh, Business Association, uh, like Kershid Koja, and they're working on um, kind of the social equity model penal code so that other states can kind of have a... Uh, kind of a template of how to build a proper social equity program. Uh, and, and so, I mean, all the people that we have coming are the heavy hitters and not just for the social equity day, but, you know, for all our days. So, um, like I said, week one is social equity or week zero. Uh, week one is the business of cannabis. Um, and then the next week is global policy, uh, followed by licensing and regulation. This includes hemp. Um, and then ethics is our, is, is another one, you know, they have to get their ethics credit. So it's a pretty great offering. Um, we're far priced below what the, you know, traditional normal price is for CLE credit. Um, and like I said, we're building the most comprehensive, um, library of cannabis education. And, and, you know, when we choose all our speakers, we have that in mind. Um, and if anybody wants to see the, the, uh, website is incbaevents.org. And so, so anybody that, can attend, Chris. Yeah, and our members get a discount. Um, however, if if you're not a member and you heard this, find me and I'll give you a discount. <laughs> you <heard laughs> <it> here. Yeah. <laughs> you heard it here, guys. Well, I mean, the event definitely sounds awesome. I mean, we've we've you know seen so many different events have to pivot during COVID to change to this virtual platform. And so it's really interesting to hear that you're keeping the content going for a month because I think that, you know, many people do have 
many things that they have to juggle throughout the day. So to be able to attend an event, you know, four or five hours worth of content in one day is very challenging for a lot of people. So I really personally like this idea that throughout the month, now I believe I read on the website, it's like Tuesdays and Thursdays are going to be like most of the content will happen on certain days of the week at certain times so that people can, will, will you also be able to uh, see everything afterwards when you're saying you're creating this archive? So if I miss the live talk, will I be able to go back and, and watch that again? Absolutely. That's exactly how we're doing it. Not only is it, you know, it, the, all the videos will be open for the entire month as they are made. Um, and then once uh, we do close that, uh, close the conference, the videos will be put up on our on-demand. Um, and then, you know, you can purchase it through the on-demand. But, uh, you know, anybody attending the 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 symposium or the Cannabis Law Institute will get the entire month of the offering. Um, you can buy it by a week. And you get the social equity for free if, if you just want to get for a week and you do get access to the access to the platform for the whole month. Um, that is an option. But, you know, I think the the price difference between that, the week and the whole whole shebang is not that much. So we incentivize people to get the whole month. Absolutely. So, I mean, you want to go to as much as you possibly can. It sounds like there's going to be some amazing speakers. So where do you house all of that information? Is it... Um a library that you all have online? Do you all have, um, you know, a, a brick and mortar offices? Are you virtual? Uh, yeah, we all are working from home. Um, my boss lives in Oakland, California. So, you know, we work remotely and, and basically what we, we it's a company. Uh, we, we partner with CE21, um, Continued Education 21. They right. do this for a lot of different industries. So built in with their system are different and because we're doing it for continued education, there's some requirements that we need to fill, you know, like a little code will pop up that you need to enter to say, you know, show that you're there. So they have all those bells and whistles and, and their platform is tailored towards, uh, you know, our type of education, whether it's in the cannabis industry, the medical industry, the pharmaceutical industry, you know, there's so many different industries that require CE um, to keep your license valid. So, I mean, that's what they're built for. And, and they're a great partner. We're very happy with them. I love that. I love that. And, you know, because we, you and I have personally had so many discussions around the importance of social equity in cannabis, I wanted to just give you the opportunity to share some of that because I'm lucky enough to hear your insights about it since we're friends and we chat and we, we communicate. But can you share with our listeners a little bit about your thoughts on the importance of social equity in cannabis and then also what your organization may do in terms of programs or projects to support social equity? Yeah, I mean, so, and it's kind of timely, right, with everything that's going on, uh, when you look at generational wealth, let's start with generational wealth, and, and you look at how many families that, you know, weren't in slavery, or, or disenfranchised in some way are able to have the funds at this point in time to jump into the cannabis industry, they're also probably not in jail, or probably haven't been caught. Um, and, you know, since 2007, I've seen a lot of these owners, I've seen a lot of the people who are in the industry, and I don't see enough women and uh, people of color. I mean, that's just kind of the basics, whether they're Native American, Indian, Hispanic, uh, African American, uh, it's just very rare to see them. And to that end, it's like, 
how many more people are we going to let take these business owner spots or, or these opportunities to create a generational wealth for somebody who maybe uh, has not been able to do that before to own a business, to own, to create a legacy. Um, and you know, there's just a lot of tools that that requires, whether it's the mindset, you know, uh, having, having uh, the right education to be able to overcome the hurdles of, of uh, business ownership or even sometimes employment. You know, sometimes sometimes people don't even have the basic skills to stay employed. Um, and I really do see as the cannabis industry is this one opportunity to kind of rewrite uh, racial injustice um, and kind of acknowledge that something was done incorrectly uh, over the years here in America. And, um, and that's kind of something I really wish people would come out and say is we, we kind of flubbed this one. <laughs> you know, we kind of messed up. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when we it comes to cannabis and, and we may, maybe, maybe there were some lies told and we apologize for any misconceptions. I I'd really appreciate that, uh, from a presidential candidate. I, I won't hold my breath. I like that, Chris. I, we <laughs> got to get that out there. I'm sorry. I come from a political background and, and I think you're right. You have something there. We need um, an apology from, um, our forefathers and yeah. how they set us up yeah and and you know that that also hits home for me i'm i'm native hawaiian so a lot of that same animosity uh exists in hawaii through this colonization process um you know we were an independent monarch i won't go into the whole history of hawaii that probably nobody learns in school um except for people who live in hawaii uh <laughs> but i mean yeah it, it's it's very close to that experience of colonization and the after effects and kind of the whole attitude and you know we hawaii was given a congressional apology um for what happened uh that was during bill clinton's uh presidency uh and i think something similar needs to be done to a lot of people who are currently sitting in jail um i know biden yes. and harris are going into their whole thing of what they're going to do um and they've had plenty of time to do things while they were in positions of power. So You're there's also that issue. Uh, but I mean, it, it's time. You got to make the change. And, you know, I'm I'm willing to vote for anybody who gives me the best cannabis policy. Like, I, I'm kind of at that point where it's just like, you know, on this issue alone, if we if America get this right in the next four years, I will be happy. And I think a lot of injustices and resentment could be quelled through this. And I mean, how many more rich white males need to be in this industry? <laughs> I, mean, I, I could go into naming off some companies and whatnot, but I, let's be real. Female leadership or uh, alternative leadership is not a bad look right now. And when you come from not having much, it, you know, this is a much different opportunity. And, and I want to see that kind of passionate industry of people you know, not wanting to be sell out, but are wanting to make it better, are wanting to contribute in a net positive type of way. And 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 when I say that, it's just like it, there's so many ways to tribute, whether it's it's on the on the level of giving people who need a job that have been harmed by the war on drugs a job. There's the level of, you know, getting people through social equity, business owners. Um, and there's also the like what I could do at my association, which is support people in getting a business and building programs where, you know, they can take classes. And I, and I do look at different organizations like the NCIA who are doing similar things like this and have social equity uh, 
programs. Um, I actually signed up myself for their program as a social equity applicant. I was able to get free membership at the NCIA um, just because I was qualified as a social equity applicant in um, California, Los Angeles. So, I mean, I, I look not only for my own benefit, for anybody in my position too, of how can we start supporting people who have been harmed by the war on drugs um, in an impactful way that actually leads to them having employment or ownership and, and actually taking control of part of the cannabis industry. And I think through that collective control and education and being able to kind of have your first minority-owned corporate America, it's like a completely shift in ideology away from how things are traditionally done. And if you look at how things are traditionally done and you apply it to the cannabis industry, a lot of these people have failed. Um, you know, it, it's no not doubt. a industry. No um, so I really, you know, I, I want people who come in to, 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 to take that kind of stance. And I, I most often find that, um, it's those that were hurt by the war on drugs that are, are not only want to make a change to the positive in their own life and their own pocketbook, but for their community, you know, they want to do just as good for their community as they do for themselves. And they see that as a duty that they have to lift their community with them. And, and I do believe that cannabis and the taxes and the money to be made, uh, can do exactly that with the right leadership. Yes. So, so how can others get involved with your organization and events, or maybe not your organization per se, because uh, you know that involves having a degree. But um, are there other organizations like you bring up NCIA? I love Michael. Um, I didn't know that they had um, membership opportunities. Uh, for minorities, I think that's awesome. Thank you for bringing that up. Are there other organizations that people should know about and get involved with? Yeah, like you say, absolutely. Lift, uh, lift this up. <laughs> NCIA is a great one. I I'm a big supporter. Um, to hear Johnson recently took over their uh, minority or social equity outreach, and he's he's doing a great job. Uh, I think. Another one is the Minority Cannabis Business Association, mm -hmm. so the MCBA. Uh, the president of that organization is Jason Ortiz. He um, is not a lawyer, but I consider him a mini lawyer. He's very knowledgeable. He works with uh, plenty of attorneys. Um, and they, and like I said, they were writing the model penal code for social equity. So um, they're in the middle of that. Uh, we at INCBA definitely, you know, are there to help them out. I participated in kind of the early drafting stages uh, of that uh, 2020 policy. And um they're an amazing organization. Uh, I, I really appreciate that. And then there's like minorities for medical marijuana. Uh, there's just so many people that you see over and over. And the reason you see them over and over is because they're really that amazing. And, uh, you know, if you kind of just take a second to look out who's working in your local community, I would start there. Because when you kind of go local, uh, you'll get plugged in and then you can kind of get to the bigger levels. Uh, but NCIA and MCBA definitely two that I would look into getting membership to. And we have done uh, specials for MCBA members. We've actually given them free membership at the INCBA if they're attorney and an MCBA member. Um, and we also have given NCIA members discounts uh, for membership at us. Um, but yeah, we're mainly for attorneys. So if you're not an attorney, we uh, don't serve you as much as we serve attorneys in the industry. Um, you know, whether it's through education or we also, you know, we just wrote an amicus brief for the uh, Marvin Washington's uh, case against uh, the AG. 
I think they're they're getting a writ of certiorari from the Supreme Court. So we just wrote a uh, amicus brief to support that. Um, we've wrote other amicus briefs to support attorneys who've been in trouble ethically. Um, so we do try to keep our attorney members as safe and supported as possible to be able to practice um, and be good lawyers in the cannabis industry. Wonderful. You're just, I, I could talk to you all day, Chris. You're, you're just an amazing human. And I appreciate you sharing your intimate story about how you got involved in the industry. And I think that's always such a special way to get people to understand why so many of us in the industry are as passionate about being in this industry and to really understand the story. And so thank you for being so honest and sharing everything with us today. Um, it's been just a delight to chat with you. Thank you too. I, I appreciate both of you so much for what you're doing here. So I, I would, I'm happy and honored to be here. <laughs> Well, thank you again so much. And today we're talking to Christopher Takimoto Gentili from the International Cannabis Bar Association. Thank you again for joining us today on The Vine. To learn more about this organization, you can visit canbar.org where you can learn more about the event that Chris talked about today. And to learn more about what we do here at Plant Media Project, we hope that you'll continue to follow us on our podcast and tune in next time for more discussions around the changing landscapes around cannabis and for everything around Plant Media Project, we hope that you'll visit us online at plantmediaproject.com.